Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 587 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday, the 14th of January, 2011, and that means that it is a Friday. One of my favorite types of shows to do. It takes a little more work. But I really enjoy them because I get to hear from you. In fact, about half of the show is the audience today. Because you made your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, if you want to be on a show like this in the future, make a call like the ones you're going to hear today. 866-65-THINK. The answering machine will pick up. I guess you call it that. Voicemail is a better way to look at it. You leave a message of two minutes or less. Remember, you only get two minutes. Be short, concise, to the point. Make your question and add details at the end. That way, if you get cut off, I know what your question is. I'll try to get you on the air. couple tips to get on the air. One, short, concise, and to the point really helps. Uh, number two, do not call from cell phones in a vehicle where you're moving, and you may fade in and out and not know it because no one there is to tell you you know, you faded out. Uh, I threw away four calls this morning that I think that was probably the issue. It'd be like, hey, Jack, I have a question about... <laughs> okay, I can't use calls like that. Do not call from vehicles with the window rolled down. There's no way that's going to work. Do not call from bowling alleys or sporting events or wherever some of y'all are calling from. Call from a quiet location, and I'll try to get you on the air. Uh, before we go to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Important you listen to the housekeeping today. Why? We're going to give away another copy of Lights Out the Book and two free memberships to the Member Support Brigade. I'm going to tell you how to do that at the end of the housekeeping, so stick with me till we get there. First, we're going to take care of our sponsors like we always do. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. I think, if I remember correctly, Safe Castle Royal was the first official paying sponsor uh, to be featured on the Survival Podcast. They've been with us almost since the day there was an ability to be a sponsor. They've also always given away to our member support brigade since we launched that program a free discount membership to their website. And uh, that is a really awesome program. Most people pay 29 bucks for it. And uh, that gives you big discounts to everything sold on Safe Castle Royal, which is everything for your prepping needs you can possibly imagine. But if you support the Members Brigade here, you get that membership for free. So that's $29 out of your first year's dues right there with just one benefit. Safe Castle, long-term supporter of the show, top quality products, great pricing, excellent service. Check them out. Safe Castle Royal, available at prepared.pro. Or you can use their website banner on our site, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Next up today, Common Sense Prep. What is Common Sense Prep? Well, it's a website where you can get everything you need for common sense preparations uh, for your, 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 you know, your uncertain future. Nothing tinfoil hat, simple, everyday common sense items, including a great, great selection of palette impressed books and DVDs on a, just an amazing variety of, of subjects and topics. And remember, if you're in the Member Support Brigade, you can get those books and DVDs at 15% off. Uh, next up, I did promise you a contest today. Here's how the contest is going to work. Yesterday, I had David Crawford on the show. He announced the contest. Today, I'm giving away the second of five books. We'll be doing one a day for the next, well, four more days now, including today. And the way you can win today... 
go to lightsoutthebook.com. That's David's website, lightsoutthebook.com. Click on the About the Author page. And there is a little paragraph next to his picture. And not the last word on the page, in that page itself, like down there where it's like copyright stuff and all. The paragraph that tells you about the author. The last word in that paragraph is the code word for today. Send me an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with that code word in the subject line. Nothing but that one word. Send me your name, your shipping address. And that's all I need today. You don't even have to be in the regular contest. I promised David I would do this for everybody, whether you've entered the contest or not. Send that email in, and I will give one person, I won't tell you which person, we're going to do a random drawing out of everybody that sends it in, I'll give one person a free copy of Lights Out the Book, that'll be sent by David Crawford, and I'll give two others a free member support brigade membership today, valued at 50 bucks. Uh, so, you know, make sure you play. If you can't, you don't play, you can't win. And uh, you're going to have to go over to David's website to get the code word. This will end at midnight tonight. Okay, I'm doing a drawing with this, not, you know, in the order received. So everybody has an equal shot when I do the contest with a drawing instead of saying, you know, respond at 1 in 25 and, and, and 75, right? So with that, um, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at 20 cents an episode, and you help me continue to bring you great, interesting stuff like we're going to do today. With that, let's go ahead and take that first call. Hello, hi, my name is Arndel LeBlanc, I'm from Montreal, Canada, and I was just wondering uh, what you thought about in Sarnia, there was a, a whole bunch of motorists that got stuck in a, a whiteout, there was a big blizzard, and they had to spend, uh, I heard reports of 24 hours to 36 hours inside their car, and the government had to send in helicopters, uh, send in military, police to help these people out, and a lot of people on the radio, when you listen to them, they, they talk about how they, uh, they didn't have any food, any water, anything in their car, and that they were starting to get hungry. And I just gave you a couple survival tips for people about what you should have in your car for uh, maybe more people north of the border, people who have, the, people who have to deal with the snow. But uh, it would be fun if you could, uh, you could look at that. Thank you so much, and uh, good job for what you're doing. It's really fun, and I'm listening to you uh, even in Montreal, Canada. And I'm, uh, my bug-out bag is almost done. I've got some herbs growing inside my apartment. And, uh, yeah, just a better type of living. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, as in many things that we see on TV, I think that the lesson with the motorist stranded, and as you guys can tell, I'm, I'm working on calls that are about three weeks old right now, working the backlog out that we created with the holidays, um, which is based on the time that that event occurred. But, but we look at the news and a lot of times we say, well, maybe we should be prepared because that type of thing could happen to us. I think the big lesson from what happened up there, and this happened also on roads in the United States, in, uh, I believe upper, upper, uh, Michigan and, uh, the Dakotas as well. And those people are generally more prepared than most for things like this, but apparently quite a few were caught unawares as well. Maybe not to the level that it was up there in Canada. But, <clears throat> Everybody looks at this and goes, wow, look, that could happen to us. Well, here's the reality. These people were, were caught there for most of them for uh, a day. Uh, the government was able to respond because there were so many people in one place. They knew where they were at, and they came in and they got them out, and they did what they could to clear the area up. 
Um, because it was a day and cars used very little gas and idle, anybody with close to a full tank was probably able to, you know, turn the vehicles on and off, on and off, on and off, and keep it relatively warm and be sheltered in their vehicle and make it through until they got out. A day without food or water sucks, but it's, it's not a survival situation. If you go one day without anything, you're not in a survival situation unless it's without oxygen or without shelter. And the two things that these people had was oxygen, because it was available, and shelter from their vehicles. And I imagine that some people that had larger tanks and more fuel probably took people that had run out and probably doubled up in vehicles with them. And the more people in a vehicle, the warmer you keep it with body heat anyway. So it sucked. And it, 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 hopefully everybody that went through it learned something. They'll put a basic winter kit together. But you know it's a lot worse than what we just saw? What it's you by yourself, so that it's only one person and no one comes looking for you or you're hard to find, and you're stranded somewhere out in a position like that, and you've maybe gone off the road and your car is obstructed by the snow, and no one knows to look for you, and there's very little traffic coming by or you're injured or whatever, and you're stuck there, and you're stuck there for multiple days. Or we have a whiteout like this that's much bigger And, yeah, the government knows where everybody is, but it's over a much broader area, and response times are slow, and people are stuck out there for three, four, or more days. Now we're in real survival situations, where people can start to die due to exposure, the, the fuel that's in the tanks wear out, things like that. So what this teaches us is that everybody, everybody anywhere, should have good winter uh, gear in their vehicles, even if you live in Texas. Um, we just had temperatures that went down into the lower 20s, into the teens, actually, uh, not last night, but the night before, uh, right here in the Dallas area. That's cold enough to die. Let's be honest with each other. It's cold enough to die. Now, are we likely to have a big blizzard here in Texas? No, we did have 11 inches of snow. 11 inches last year. It can happen. The further you go north, though, the more, obviously, you need to pay attention to things like this. The big things you need to make sure you have... Good insulating blankets and additional clothing and gloves and things like this, protecting the extremities. I'll tell you what I learned as a hunter, as a young man, and then later in the military when we were doing field training exercises before I went to a place that never gets cold, Panama, and that, that, and then, you know, this was all over with. Um, but if your feet are cold, you're cold. If your hands are cold, you're cold. If you can keep your feet and hands warm, you don't really feel that miserable. So that's got to be a priority. Sleeping bags are a great thing to have in your vehicles, especially the further north you go, the more important this is. If you get inside a vehicle blocked from the wind in a good winter-grade sleeping bag and you're wrapped in that, you're going to stay fairly warm. Uh, in fact, you're going to stay extremely warm. And if you have a couple people in a vehicle and each person has one, you're going to make it through. Obviously, food and water. Now, the problem with water is water can freeze. Uh, it makes sense to have all the stuff. If you, you know, Here's the thing. If you have a good, solid bug-out bag, 72-hour kit with you in your vehicle at all times, which we all should, and you maybe just up kind of the winter insulating stuff, you're going to be okay. Because what do we do to make water? Well, we need heat. So as long as we can have heat, we, can, we need, you know, we, we want to make fire. So having things that we can start fire with, uh, uh, like a good, even like a good butane stove or something like that to get through a few days, being able to melt some snow, uh, and, and make water. Obviously we're stuck in the snow. There's plenty of water out there. We just don't want to go eating into the snow because it lowers our core temperature. During the day, if we're long term, uh, stuck out there, uh, once the snow stops, if the sun comes out, even when it's very cold out, even without, <clears throat> 
a lot of uh, internal, like the heater and the engine running, if we clear the windows of the snow and we let the sunlight in, vehicles are remarkably warm during the day. In fact, they might get too warm. So if we're stuck out there long term, we want to use the passive solar radiation during the day and save whatever fuel we have in the vehicle uh, to run the heater to do so at night. Now, when we're in a whiteout condition, all bets are off with that. But I'm talking about once the snow stops flying and you're now at a point where you're waiting to be rescued because maybe you can't get out or walk out or what have you. Big thing, though, just have really good insulators in your in your, your car. Uh, and there's nothing better than good full Um, uh, sleeping bags for that. Uh, I've been on, on some camping trips and out in the wilderness where it's been really miserable cold. And once you get into a good, and I mean a good quality, you know, coffin wrap sleeping bag, uh, you warm up pretty well, even in the temperatures that are, temperatures that are sub-zero. Okay, let's go ahead and take another question. Great one there. Yeah, hi, Jack. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm out in California. My question has to do with some reading I've been doing, Chris Martinson, Crash Course, and some other resources. Looks like we're kind of flipping the coin about inflation versus um, deflation, perhaps even hyperinflation. I'm leaning towards the uh, the inflation end of things. Um, I was around in the Jimmy Carter days when uh, buying a home, uh, the mortgage was 18%. Maybe here's my question. It has to do with getting out of debt and that whole concept. Uh, the question might go like this. Uh, why not buy those necessities that will be increasing in price now as opposed to paying off debt and buying them later um, when the debt is gone? I know you're big about getting out of debt. I'm, all, I'm wondering how to balance all of that with um, the fact that I think a lot of things are starting to go up and will continue to go up really fast the next couple of years and maybe resources that could have been used to pay off debt should be used to buy things now that I know are going to be more expensive down the road. And I'd sure appreciate your thoughts on that. Thanks so much. Really appreciate what you're doing. Bye-bye now. That's a question I get just just multitudes of variations thereof, and I'll have to keep answering probably for as long as there is a survival podcast, because as long as there's people out there that want to sell debt, they will put things out that, that make debt look attractive. If we have massive runaway inflation... And if you keep your job, and if your income goes up with the inflation, yes, debt can work. Those are lots of ifs. And there's an old saying that if is the largest two-letter word in the English language. Now, there is a balance. If you're sitting on debt and you're totally unprepared at the same time, you have no preps, you have no food stored, you don't have any water purification, you're kind of naked in the wind. You don't even have a 72-hour kit. Obviously... If you take 100% of every bit of surplus you have and you use it to pay off your debt and you don't do anything to prepare, if something happens in that lag time that's critical where you needed to be prepared, you're kind of in a deep, deep world of hurt. But let me put it to you a different way, especially with the credit card debt. If you have a credit card and you start massively paying off the debt and all of a sudden you see a major storm coming and you feel totally unprepared and you're like, man, I'd rather have the debt and the stuff, right, than, than have none of the stuff and none of the debt. Well, your credit card will still work. You can go buy the stuff then. I mean, worst case scenario, you can always go back into the debt if we ever end up kind of in a, you know, a Thor's hammer situation where there's the, you know, the, the rock in the hard place and you're right in between them and you see it closing in on you. So the thing about paying debt off is you always can go back in, 
But unless something like that happens, you never will once you pay it off because you'll feel the freedom. The problem is that you don't know the freedom of debt freedom. Whenever you were debt free, you had nothing. As you accumulated things in life, people gave you credit and you went into debt slavery. So you have nothing to compare what you feel now to being free. So you don't know what you're working for. So you have to trust people like me and other people who have done it to believe that it's worth the cost. But that said, if you're totally unprepared, maybe you say, I have, you know, X dollars available extra a month to work on my debt with. Well, maybe we take 20% of that number and we put it into flat out cash savings. We take 20% of that number and we put that into prepping. We take 60% and we apply it to the debt. Depending on how big the number is, we might have to take 10% for savings and 10% for prepping and 80% for the debt. Here's what you have to do with the debt. You write a, a, a debt elimination plan. You know how much you have to pay each month on the debt to zero the debt in X number of months or years. And if that number's more than three years, it's really too long. And it should be two years or less with any kind of credit card, student loan, anything like that, if it's possible. And most of the time, when you say it's not possible, that's your mental objection to it. Now, if you make $20,000 a year and you have $80,000 of debt, obviously two years is impossible. And I wonder how you got in that situation. And you really have to try to up your income. Now, the whole concept of though the, the heart of the question is, well, if I hold the debt and I, I use the extra money to buy preps and something goes wrong, I'm better off. Well, what happens? Remember, the entire thesis of everything we do as modern survivalists, we're not complete doomers. We don't believe the end of the world is nigh and there's nothing that can be done about it. You're betting 100% on inflation and collapse when you take that approach. What happens when it doesn't come, or it doesn't come in the timeline that fits your capacity to bear it? Or what happens when the collapse comes for you, the individual? Hey, guess what? You lost your job. Ding, 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 ding. You're a winner of an unemployment check. Goodbye, go home. But society around you basically stays together. Your neighbor still has his job. And your neighbor on the other side of you still has his job. And all of a sudden, all this debt is compounding on top of a reduced income. And then you're the rock in the hard place, and you don't have a way out. See, if you take my way out, and the rock and hard place start to come in around collapse, you can go back into debt. If you hold on to the debt, and it comes at you any other way, you are 100% completely screwed. With my way, you have multiple options. With the, the, the financial advisor way. Because financial advisors love debt. Not all of you, don't get mad at me if you're one that doesn't, but financial advisors by and large love debt. I remember one time I wanted to make a major purchase Basically, I was buying the second home that we have in Arkansas. This is my financial advisor. So I'm like, you know what? We kept some of our money out of 401ks and IRAs for just this type of thing. I want to sell some of my mutual funds and stocks. I want to pull out 10% of the down payment. And I want to take that 10%, put it on this property. I'll get a great loan, great interest, all that wonderful stuff out of that property because of a heavy down payment uh, and my asset portfolio on my credit. Here's the solution. You know, you have lots of equity in your existing home, Jack. Why don't we do this? This way you won't have any cash out of pocket. Why don't you take a home equity loan on your existing home, 
for the amount that you need and use it for the down payment on your other home. And that way you'll keep all of your money. And his argument was the same as yours. Inflation will take care of the rest. The problem is we don't know if it's going to be inflation or deflation, and we don't know what form inflation will take. And inflation only helps, this is the, this is the critical, critical thing, and this is where we have to start thinking like chess players. For the love of God, America, you are playing chess with these people, and, and you are sitting there with a checkers mentality, move for move. They're playing three-dimensional chess like you see on Star Trek. You've got to come up to that level of thought. It only works if you keep your job and your income. If you lose your income, lose your job, or see a reduction in income during an inflationary period when you're holding debt, it is the ultimate crucifix for you. You're done. You're fried. And that's what's going to happen to most people. We talk about inflation as though it can run away and everybody keeps their job and your, your, your pay rate will just climb with it. Slow, steady, continual inflation, generally speaking, for in-demand skills, that's the way it works. I don't know if you've noticed what's going on out there, but it's called a recession. It's really, they won't admit it, you know what it really is, it's a depression. And what you're seeing is a complete restructuring of the business climate. I'm telling you, many of the jobs that disappeared, that are gone now, they're never coming back. We have a 10 to 15 year surplus of workers ahead of us. Under the best case scenario, there will be in demand high tech skill sets and certain other niche skill sets that will be sharply in demand. But if you're not in one of those, it's going to be a world of hurt in the future. So you can't bet on this. I, I know I get excited when I talk about this, but I hate to see people misled with this voodoo magic. Hey, watch this here. Look at look at the pretty lady dance. Ah, look at the quarter in here. See the shiny quarter? That's what they're doing to you when they sell you this idea. you got to kill the debt. you got to have a plan for it. you got to stick to the plan. You can have room for other things in your life during the elimination, but the debt takes the priority till it's gone. Because once it goes away, you will have so much surplus, you'll be able to do the things you want to do. If it starts to fall apart during the payoff, whatever you've paid off, you could, I don't want you to, but in the worst case scenario, you could go back into it. You have options. The other way, there are no options. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is a rail dog here in Tulsa. I had a question. I was listening to your show yesterday where you were talking about the pollution, heavy metals, mercury going into our oceans. And this is something that I've been wondering about, I was wondering if you had addressed um, the cycle of delivering mercury into our oceans is, is the aerial pollution that gets caught in the rainwater and rains down. When we're trying to look at preps to be able to store rainwater, is this mercury contamination something that's a significant thing we need to look at? Do we need to look for mercury testing, something like that, to be able to see whether or not What's being collected in our rain barrels is potentially hazardous. Anyway, thanks for everything you do. Bye. Well, if I told you rainwater was 100% free of mercury, I, uh, I'd probably be lying to you. And because that is a major way, not the only way, but it's a major way that the mercury gets into our water, our lakes, our streams, and our, our oceans. But the, the, the issue with 
mercury uh, toxicity out of uh, seafood really revolves heavily around something called bioaccumulation, which we were just talking about on Tuesday with Patriot Nurse. And what you have to understand is how vast the ocean is, how vast the rains over the ocean and over water that actually ends up in the ocean are. And inside the ocean, there are these vast webs of plankton and zooplankton and, and, and plant plankton. And these little guys accumulate the mercury at a very, actually at kind of a tiny level. And then little fish eat those little planktons and then they accumulate it. Every time we go up one level in a trophic le level, we increase the, 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 the toxicity of the mercury because it's a bioaccumulator. In other words, it gets into a system it's very hard to expel. So the little fish eats hundreds and t hundreds of tiny little planktons over his life, and one day along comes a slightly bigger fish. And he looks at that little fish and goes, hmm, he looks good, chomp. So, you know, that fish is some type of a, an intermediate predator, and he's cruising around with his school of predators. Remember Nemo, the little jack mackerels making all the different pictures? And then one day, a bigger fish looks at him and goes, he looks good, and he's out on the edge of the school, and he picks him off. And all the way up these trophic levels, this mercury is bioaccumulating. And when we get to top predators like salmon and tuna, we find the mercury concentrations in their flesh Far greater than in the water, or the plankton, or the tiny fish, or the mini fish, or the, you know, each step along the way. Further up the food chain. So that's why they say if you want to eat seafood with lower mercury levels, go further down the food chain. Obviously the anchovy that's living mostly on the plankton has accumulated less than the fish that's eaten thousands and thousands of, of anchovies before it grew into a 400 pound tuna. And each time that one one level at the trophic pyramid consumes the other, that accumulation goes up. What does that mean? That means that the water itself is not that dangerous for us as far as mercury concentrations. Um, is it a good idea maybe to still filter rainwater? Absolutely. Products like the Berkey specifically will filter mercury. Not 100%, but they will cause a 95% reduction in mercury. So if you're using rainwater catchment, um, any of the toxic heavy metals that may be part of that rainwater, if you use a quality system like the Berkey, it is the one I recommend most highly, not just because they're a sponsor, because I evaluated them all, and they're one of the more expensive initial costs, and they're the lowest cost I can find of anything when you measure it out over multiple years. And I buy things based on lifetime cost and return of investment, not initial cost. So that's why I'm a big fan of Berkey, but there's other filters that'll do that. Um, I mean, if you're doing rain catch and you're using like hard surfaces like roofs, there's a variety of contaminants that can get in there for watering your plants and all. You don't have to worry about it. For the stuff you're going to drink, um, definitely I would look at additional filtration. But I wouldn't over-concern myself with this because I guarantee you one thing. The water that falls from the sky, polluted though it may be, is probably a hell of a lot less dangerous for you, even if we're just caught directly in a bucket unfiltered, than the water that the average American is drinking that has chromium, radon, uh, fluoride, and chlorine in it. So I would, I would, you know, still consider uh, filtration. When we move to Arkansas, we have a great well. We'll still run our drinking water through our filters. Uh, we'll remove the fluoride filters uh, because they can take out some other trace minerals that we want in the water, and we don't have fluoride in that water. We've had it tested. Um, but I, I, I'm definitely still going to use my Berkey when we're up there, even with the clean water out of the well. Why wouldn't I? 
How do I know that maybe something hasn't gotten in the well and contaminated it? And I guarantee you, if we're ever relying on rainwater, we'll filter. Now, on filters, I've had people say, it's not sustainable. Really? Buy, you know, a dozen elements. And that's enough to go, I mean, you're talking 10, 15 years of the filtration for drinking water needs. So that's my thoughts on that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Carson from Canada. I just had a thought. What about addressing the idea of cast iron as being part of your preps? First of all, Teflon's toxic. Aluminum can accumulate in your bloodstream. So cast iron is healthier. Um, some people say it adds dietary iron, iron to your food. Some people say it doesn't. It doesn't hurt anything. If you season it properly, um, and even if you ruin the season, you can reseason it, but if you season it properly, it's nonstick. It'll last a lifetime, or two, or three or four, or you get the picture. And you don't have to worry, so because it lasts so long, you don't have to worry about it wearing out in an emergency situation, which would not be cool to be relying on a nonstick pan and then it starts to scratch in an emergency, in a, some emergency situation where you can't get a replacement, which isn't all that likely, but still, it's, uh, it's a thought I had, and uh, I was wondering what your thoughts were on it. Hope you have a great day. Bye. Now, I don't have much to add. I mean, Carson pretty much covered it all there. I'm big on cast iron. Um, Nick at Save Our Skills just had a great article out on using and seasoning and working with cast iron cookware. I'll put a link in today's show notes to that. Again, you guys should always be checking out SaveOurSkills.com. If you like the Survival Podcast, you'll like Save Our Skills. It is a, it is my brainchild. Uh, I put it together. I came with the concept, and I selected Nick Ledoux uh, as the guy to run, maintain, and, and manage that site. So definitely check that article out. And while you're there, if you haven't yet, subscribe to SaveOurSkills.com. Um, on, on the cookware, I'll, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. When I was a little bitty kid, my grandmother had this great big flat cast iron griddle. And I remember she used to make pancakes and bacon and all kinds of stuff like that, and a lot of her Ukrainian stuff and all on it. And she would just take this cast iron thing and throw it on the top of the coal stove to heat it up. And she would just kind of move it over to the cooler spot on the stove if it got too hot with, with a with a, kind of this metal thing that we used to crank and, and get the coal ashes out of the stove. And over time, we replaced the coal stove with a gas stove, and she just kept on using it. And I always loved cooking with this thing or watching her cook with it when I was a little bitty kid. We'd take vacations there before we actually moved up there. And uh, I remember talking to her in our kitchen all the time about it. And she said, yep, your, um, your great-grandmother handed this down to me. And my father has this thing now. I would like it. I want it. I want it to be mine one day. He won't give it to me. Um, if I outlast my dad, which, you know, there's no guarantees in life, but if I do, eventually it will be mine. Uh, I guarantee you I could hand it down to my son uh, when we're gone, and it will still be able to cook bacon and eggs. And there is no Teflon pan in the world we can say that about. And the, the longer you use them and the more you properly season them, the better they become. A really well-seasoned uh, cast iron skillet, an egg will slide out of there better than anything coated with Teflon. And there are health concerns with aluminum and Teflon. Pretty much all of our cookware is either stainless steel, cast iron, porcelain-coated cast iron, or stainless steel-coated cast iron. 
I mean, that's, that's pretty much all we use. And the heating properties are amazing. Um, there's much more even, uh, reliable and retained heat with cast iron. So, good stuff. Thanks, Carson. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Bobo on the forums. Hey, just a quick comment for you. Uh, I'm actually moving from, uh, uh, from Houston, Midland. And in that process, I'm not going to have a refrigerator. But I do have a freezer. And, uh, when I'm going to be out there, I'm not going to have access to another refrigerator for about a month. So I was trying to figure out how I could turn this freezer into a refrigerator, and uh, after doing some research online, turns out you can get a um, you can get an external thermometer they use for uh, brewing beers and brewing meads, I believe, and you put it in the freezer, and it just keeps the, the freezer at a, at a higher temperature uh, other than its normal thermostat. It overrides it by uh, you physically plugging in the freezer into this device, and then the probe is actually inside the, uh, the freezer. Anyway... So uh, looking into it further, turns out it'll turn the freezer into an ultra-efficient refrigerator, which is a great idea when it comes to things like power outages because now that same freezer can, uh, or now new refrigerator can be uh, last uh, a lot longer with the same amount of reserved power, like say from a backup solar system, which I already have as well. So just thought I'd leave that comment. Again, thanks for a great show, and uh, keep up the good work. Oh, that's an awesome idea. I mean, I... I even think that might have uh, tremendous applications for, like you're saying, people with solar, uh, maybe people that are using solar uh, extensively on an ongoing basis, not just for backup, uh, they, they might find that if they had two chest freezers, one being run as a typical chest freezer and one being run with this type of modification to act as a refrigerator, it may be far more energy efficient than a typical refrigerator freezer side-by-side arrangement, have greater capacity, greater longevity, and, and less electrical draw. Really cool idea. And there's other ways to do this. Um, as soon as he started talking, I'm like, of course. And it made me think of a video I just found from the guy that runs a website that I've recently mentioned called permies.com. Again, permies like permaculture enthusiasts. So I guess they call themselves permies now. So I guess I'm a permie and I didn't know it. But permies.com, the guy has a pretty cool YouTube channel. And he has a video where he's kind of done the same thing with a wall-mounted air conditioner in a closet, well-insulated, and he uses it as a cheese storage. So this keeps this wall-mounted air conditioner running um, when it would normally shut itself off. So he's done the reverse. So he's got it plugged in, but because it's in such a small, well-insulated space, he's able to keep temperatures much cooler than the rest of the house. Not refrigerator, but cheese storage, wine storage temperatures with just a conventional electrical, um, you know, cheap uh, air conditioner. Like you can buy at Walmart or any other store for 150 bucks or so. Uh, so I'll put a link to that video as well. I'll see if I can find a link to the controller-type uh, device that this guy's talking about here. Uh, but great call. Thanks for that one. Very interesting if we start thinking about, instead of trying to reinvent wheels, how can we take two things that are already invented, put them together, and come up with something new? Uh, great tip. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Jason. My daughter wanted to say hi. Hi. Hi, Jack. Anyways, uh, we were listening to the uh, episode with Cam, and you mentioned alternatives to um, the root cellars. And I had the thought, because I've seen some structures done with hay bales and straw, and then where they're covered with, like, clay and mud. And I would think that, you know, if you got a bunch of hay bales, you could build a 
structure, cover that with mud, um, lay some roofing over it, you know, like some good beams, and then cover that with more straw and more mud, and you'd probably get something pretty darn close to a root cellar and be able to keep it uh, rather cool, at least cooler. And actually, with after thinking about that, because I was saying, I want a root cellar, and my neighbors up the road have this one that's about 20 feet underground that looks like somebody built a bomb shelter, all carved out of the stone rock. Um, but I think this straw idea m- might be a, something I'll look into for myself. So just a thought for people in Texas, maybe build an above-ground hobbit hole. Well, it's amazing how this stuff dovetails together. I promise you I didn't plan or even really I was putting the screen of the calls out. I even realized till right now how the uh, cool room and the modification to a deep freezer might tie into the concept of uh, root cellar and straw bale construction. Um, I'm going to have to defer on this a little bit. I don't really know. If you build an above-ground straw bale structure, I guarantee you you're going to get better insulation than just about any other above-ground structure. But I don't know that you're really going to get root cellar temperatures. In fact, I would highly doubt it without at least it being somewhat subterranean. Now, might we be able to gather some of the cooling effect of the ground through the the, 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 the straw and, and the, uh, uh, the mud coating? Yeah, I think that if I was going to try to do this... I would be more likely to try to do it with uh, 25% or more subterranean. So kind of doing a cutout and building the straw bale structure over it, giving it a lower profile, making it less obvious. If we can then cut that into a bank and use a slope so that the further we go back, the more subterranean we are without going down in the soil, it might be a good option where... Uh, because of things like, you know, again, black gumbo clay here in Texas, it's almost impossible to uh, to have a cellar, uh, or in some places where ro- bedrock just basically keeps, you'd have to use dynamite to put it in. Um, there are places where you dig six inches, and you're not just hitting rocks, you're hitting rock slab. And if you're in that situation, it's almost financially impractical to consider doing as well. So it, it all depends on your individual situation. If anybody's done this or seen it done, uh, I'd like to know about it, but again, the video I talked about with the with uh, the Permies guy and uh, creating a cool room using a, mo- a simple modification to a wall mount air conditioner might be another option for the urban prepper to turn a closet into kind of a cool room, and it probably is going to use a lot less energy from what this gentleman said anyway uh, than a typical refrigerator because you're not trying to keep the same temperature. You've got all the additional insulation. Uh, again, I'll put a link to that, but. Interesting thought. If anybody knows of kind of a straw bale hybrid root cellar design, let us know in today's show notes. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Lehman from Michigan. Uh, My question is, I'm a student uh, in social work right now, and when I graduate, I will be entering the the Federal Student Loan Forgiveness Program, and uh, which is a program where you pay off your loans by working in your field, usually in a rural area. And I'm looking to move to somewhere out west, uh, Idaho, uh, Montana, Wyoming, that sort of place. And I'm wondering, of all those places, what is the best sort of climate of those for gardening? And uh, I'd like to have a a fairly sizable, uh, say, two-acre plot of land. And I'm looking for the best climate. Uh, Thanks a lot. Love the show. And uh, keep up the good work. Well, that's a great question. Unfortunately, it's one that I don't have a tremendous amount of knowledge 
uh, to answer for you, uh, but I'll do the best I can, can with it. You kind of said of the four at the end, but you only mentioned three states, so that's what I have to work with. I don't know if maybe you were going to include Utah in there uh, or one of those other states out in that area, but I'll, I'll using those three, um, I'll give you the best advice I can. From my knowledge, and understand that when I visit those areas, I spend most of my time in western Montana in the Bitterroot Mountains, and that's really the area that I love the most from a standpoint of going there to be out in the wilderness. That's not a good place to farm. We're talking about rocky high peaks, so you know over 10,000 feet high, very cold, brutal winters, very rocky soil, uh, not the place you want to be. But if you go far enough to, to the west out to Washington State, eventually you get to the Cascade Range, and then coming back the other side, you hit the, the Bitterroots and the rest of the Rockies. And in between there, there's a pretty good basin, and in that basin sits Idaho. We come to the southern side of that basin, they call that the southern basin of Idaho, which basically the I-84, I-86, um, call it like a half loop that goes all across the bottom of the state, starts in Boise, heads south, gets down, hits about its furthest southern point down by like Burley, and then it splits 84, turns 86, and 86 uh, comes back up, hits I-15 up into Idaho Falls. So you're looking at that kind of a big smile on the Idaho map between Boise and Idaho Falls. That whole southern part of that area and everything in that general range, uh, south of like the Sawtooth National Forest, uh, is, is the southern basin area. At least to my knowledge, that's what it's called. And it may not be quite that vast, but in that area is where I would look. So you're looking at towns like Jerome, Hazleton, uh, Shoshone, uh, Paul, Rupert, Burley, uh, pulling these right off a map on Google Maps. That area is where I would start my, my search if you're concerned with, like you said, growing conditions. I mean, the other thing you can do is talk, you can get in touch with, um, you know, local chambers of commerce and things like that and find out where most of the agricultural production is. Other than, you know, in the plains of Wyoming and Montana, they grow a lot of wheat and barley and stuff like that, but it's not really that good for the, 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 the gardener that wants to do the home two acre thing. It's a different type of, uh, of farming. That area that I've described, though, that southern basin of Idaho gets an awful lot of rain, and that's very helpful. Because it's got the mountain ranges on both sides of it, it gets an awful lot of climate stability that doesn't exist uh, in either location. You move further up, closer to the Cascades in northern Idaho, you get a big rain shadow from the Cascade Mountains. You get kind of a desert, northern desert condition. It's not really a desert, but it's, it's more desert-like up there. Down in that basin, you've got... Um, all of that rich, fertile uh, land has been formed be because of erosion and, and bringing down and kind of sitting there in a bowl-like. So I think for rain, climate stability, and fertility, it's probably the best out of the three states and the best area of the state that, that's going to you know be the best uh, for you. If anybody knows different, please tell me in the show notes. If you know some really good places in Montana or Wyoming, um, let me know. But again, I think it's going to be highly dependent on your profession. I always thought that this kind of stuff was done with urban schools, you know, like send the teachers to the urban schools to get forgiveness. But you didn't say whether you were a teacher. At least I, maybe I missed it, but I don't think you did. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe you're some kind of civil engineer or something. So it's also going to be contingent upon can you get a job in there. And I think there's enough towns and enough going on between Boise and Idaho Falls and getting outside of either one of those towns 
and following that corridor, it's probably going to be the best thing I can recommend. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. I'd love to hear from somebody lives in that area and tell me, am I right? And somebody maybe that knows Montana, Wyoming better, if you know of a similar situation in one of those states. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is David from Alabama. Got a question about uh, deer processing suggestions. Growing up in West Tennessee, uh, mostly hunted small game. There weren't very many deer. Now through conservation, of course, one county has more deer harvested than the entire state did back then. Well, now that I live in Alabama, there's a lot of deer, and so I was looking for suggestions on resources for field dressing and processing a deer. You can find some videos on YouTube about how to cut it up, but they stop right there. They don't tell you how to, to maybe package it and, and suggestions for, for dealing with that. You know, Do you vacuum pack it or how do you deal with it? And we also have a lot of feral hogs around here, so if you've got any suggestions about processing those, I'd appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thanks. I've got a few suggestions for you. I'll tell you that um, back in the day when I was a young guy in uh, Pennsylvania, we didn't have money for one of them fancy vacuum sealers, and they weren't as common, and they were a lot more expensive. So uh, what we did is we bought good old-fashioned white butcher paper, And uh, we would we would put the meat into a Ziploc bag, and we would push the air out of it, and we would roll that up, and then we would roll the butcher paper over the top of it. it gave us a great way to label it, so you knew it was in there. And a lot of butchers today still use either some plastic with or just good the coated butcher paper, not like you know like a paper bag and stuff. It's got kind of a, a plastic coating on the inside and, and good butcher tape, and, and that's what they wrap everything up in. And that's probably other than vacuum sealing the best way to go. Um, it, it definitely is going to do a hell of a lot more to prevent things like freezer burn uh, than if you just put them in a Ziploc bag and do your, be your best to get the uh, the air out of there. So really recommend butcher paper, whether you used it just straight up butcher paper without any kind of additional packaging. Uh, and a lot of butchers do. A lot of deer processors do. They don't put anything in there, wrap it up. And we did that as well, and, and that generally worked pretty well. Uh, another thing that I can give you some advice on with deer meat, You never know whether you're going to be cooking for yourself, yourself and your spouse, yourself, your spouse and your kid, a couple buddies that come over. And when we're packaging deer meat, because it makes it faster, we have a tendency, and I've always been bad about this, to go, that's not enough, put more in there, and freeze together you know, three large deer steaks or something like that. The more you can do to break it up into small pieces, the better. Because it's easy to take one more or two more or three more out, but once I've defrosted a huge bag of deer chops, I've got a certain limited time frame in which I've got to cook them. So smaller to me, smaller portions is better than larger portions. Um, you, basically, I'm not going to go through cutting them up because you're saying basically you've got the resource for that. I mean, those are my big ones. My other things are learn to bone your meat. Um, I use almost never use a saw at all when I'm, when I'm uh, doing a deer. But the only thing I do is I take a hacksaw, I hang a deer up by the back legs with the, the lower part of the back legs cut off uh, below the joint, below that last joint, so that that tendon's there. You cut through that tendon, and that gives you either hooks or nails or something on a roof or a gamble to hang that deer with. And you skin it from the, the back legs down, and when you get all of it, you pull it down to the front feet and you cut the bottom, you know, the bottom shanks of the uh, the front legs off where there's hardly any meat to worry about. And you pull it all the way down to the head and you get as much of the neck exposed as you can. And about the only bone cut I make at all is going to be cutting that head off and getting rid of the cape and, 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 and the head and things like that. Um, the rest of it, I'm boning the meat as much as I can. Uh, chronic wasting disease, 
and, and some other things that are concerned with the, the meat supply now. Uh, it exists in the bone marrow, so you want to you know immediately clean that uh, area around where you do make that one bone cut and uh, it, it kind of you know remove that meat off the neck first. And uh, I just basically don't mess with the the insides of bones ever again after that. Um, your front legs come right off uh, without any kind of bone cutting whatsoever. Uh, you might split the rib cage if you really want to get fancy with it, but or cut. And I usually do. I'd be honest with you, I usually do cut the ribs off as well. And I guess that's maybe a, a risk that I don't need to be taking. But I like to try to get some of the meat off the ribs. There ain't much meat on the ribs. You can pretty much cut them off from the outside without doing that. Your back strap comes all the way off. Um, once I do that, I will make another bone cut, but again, it's just straight through and it's not the meat that I'm eating. It's below where the back straps have already been deboned. And then you take a butcher knife and you go into the ball joints. The two back legs come off without a bone cut and then you can bone your rump and your, your kind of your sirloin portion. You can bone your back legs. An investment I would make is a good quality grinder. Um, for all the meat that's like stew meat that you want to go ahead and grind up, ground deer meat is a great resource. Mixing it with a little pork adds some fat to it. It makes great burgers. It makes great chili meat, things like that. You can use straight ground venison, but I've found even as little as uh, 10% addition of pork uh, does a lot for venison, uh, especially the ground. The ground venison generally has more of that gamey taste than your your, your cuts. So that's the thing. You can, of course, make biltong out of some of your deer. The more you have, the more biltong you'd be willing to make. I do say, even if you do your own butchering, uh, there's there's a case to be made for taking a back leg, a whole back leg down to a processor, having them turn it into a ham. Those are pretty awesome. Or make deer sausage for you or things like that. But I do believe you should learn the skill set on your own. On pork... Um, you know, you don't want to make biltong or anything undercooked with wild pork. There's a risk of trichinosis. You want to cook it. I think it's 100 and, I'm not going to say the temperature to look it up. If I get it wrong, I'll get 400 hate emails today. Uh, but I, it's, 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 you know, over 170, I think, is the temperature for pork. But if I'm wrong, please look it up first. You want to make sure you fully cook your pork. Uh, so you don't want to go biltonging pork. Uh, though I often wonder, well, about curing it as you do ham or bacon or things like that, but I guess the, there's chemicals that, that, that take care of uh, some of that concern if you do that. Uh, but pork, basically, I butcher a hog the same way I do a deer. I take the same cuts out of it. I do everything I just described. The big thing, label everything in permanent marker. Um, if you're doing uh, the vacuum sealing, it may be worth getting the butcher paper and even wrapping up multiple individual uh, stuff, like like all your chops or half of your chops in one big mass, but each individually, you know, each three or four uh, individual chops vacuum sealed, and then wrapping that all up in butcher paper keeps light out, helps protect it additionally from freezer burn, and right deer chops on it. You can always undo the tape, unroll it, take out as many as you want, roll it back up, put it back in the freezer. Labeling is critical, though, uh, because you won't remember, even if you think you'll remember, you won't remember. And label not just the cut, but if you have a like, multi-state, you know, multi-deer state, what deer it was, eat your, you know, obviously your oldest meat first. Uh, so the season, the date of the date of packaging, things like that. Uh, those that's the best advice I can give you. It's hard to do uh, deer processing audio only, but uh, those are my big pieces of advice for you. Always work for us, and if you're fortunate to have your season in a cool climate where you can hang your deer. Uh, like in a cellar or something like that, leave it hang for a day or two without any worry of the meat spoiling. It will improve the taste of it. The other thing you can do is quarter it up, basically. It does require some bone cuts, but you could quarter it up 
and put that into a, like an old refrigerator you keep out in a shed or something and let it sit in there on the bone uh, for two or three days before you debone it. Your meat will get hard. Uh, it will, it will it begin to age. It will be able to break down some of the things. It will make it more tender. But when you go to debone a deer, if it's been hanging in the cold uh, for a day or two, it's so much easier than when that flesh is still warm and it's moving around and things like that. Uh, once you debone it, if you stick it back in that refrigerator or, or in a cool room and leave it set there for a while before you start slicing it up into steaks and chops, the harder the meat is, the colder the meat is, like almost but not quite freezing, uh, it makes your hands cold when you're cutting. You get so much nicer cuts than trying to cut meat when it's kind of rolling around. You also want to make sure that a deer is well blood, bled out. Um, by hanging it upside down and cutting that head off and leaving it hang, that's going to happen naturally. But uh, bloody meat is hard to work with, not to mention some sanitation concerns as well. There you go. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Joel from Mill Creek, Washington. Uh, quick question. I don't own a house yet, but uh, when I do, I want to put it on some land and uh, you know get a garden going and hopefully have it in an area where I could do some shooting on the land. Um, but I was curious, you know, if, if I build up a bank to uh, shoot into, just how dangerous is it after a while of having all that lead in the ground? Or is there a certain way that you should irrigate around it so it doesn't kind of trickle down or, or what the protocol for that would be? So just something I thought of and uh, kind of didn't know the answer whether it's just so little that uh, it really wouldn't make a difference, or if uh, that's a big no-no, and uh, you really need to watch what you're doing if you're going to kind of build your own shooting range. All right, thanks a lot. I love the show. Um, just started listening uh, a few months ago, and I'm hooked. Appreciate everything you're doing. Bye. Well, it's kind of a balanced thing. I wouldn't overthink this, but I also wouldn't put my, my shooting berm directly next to my vegetable garden. I would kind of put it on a, a backside piece of the land and, and taking safety into consideration and all. But one thing we need to understand about when we shoot into a, a, a bank of dirt, I think that a lot of us have this, this vision of these bullets going, you know, 20 feet into the ground or something. Uh, you'd be surprised if you go to some shooting berms and just start uncovering the dirt uh, for a half inch to an inch how much of that lead sitting right there at the surface and uh, it's going to stay pretty concentrated in that area so would I take things into consideration like runoff and making sure the runoff goes somewhere other than directly into my vegetable garden uh, or my fruit trees or something like that probably yeah if I can um, I'll also tell you that if you build your, your, your berm out of something that's easy to dig into, like a very sandy soil, uh, there's no reason that you couldn't go there and, and take a lot of that back out of the soil. A simple screening box and a shovel, and you could get, you're not going to get it all, but you could get a lot of your slugs out and either dispose of them, or like most of us, you know, I, I'll put it to you this way. I do some handgun shooting and some rifle shooting with center fires and all. And I, I definitely check my, my zeros and I, I practice with my 45 because it's my main, uh, my main defensive weapon and I like to practice with my AR, uh, because it's a great gun and it's, if I don't practice with it, my wife would shoot me for not, for, for spending that much money on a rifle that I don't shoot. But the majority of my shooting is 22 rimfire. And the majority of 20 rim, 22 rimfire is non-jacketed, which means the lead you could be reclaimed and then cast, and you can do cast bullet shooting with your center fires. 
And basically, you're, you know, are you going to get 100% of your lead that way? No, but there's no reason it can't be used. Um, so, you know, I think we can get over-concerned about toxins. And, you know, I've never heard of it being a real problem. The, the one place that I concern myself uh, and don't spend entire, you know, I don't want to spend too much time at with lead uh, poisoning from shooting would be an indoor range. And uh, that that has some concerns, and probably less than I have. I mean, it's probably not as dangerous as it is in my head. Uh, but now I'm in a contained area. I've got lots of shooters. I've got rounds hitting the, uh, you know, those those metal uh, backstops that spin them around back there and deform them. And I've got lead being vaporized, and uh, I've got people going through there and cleaning it up once in a while, and some of it being, you know, atomized into the air. Uh, I'm much more concerned about that than having a berm in my backyard. I'll put it to you this way. I'm a big environmentalist, uh, but I'm going to have a nice berm and a nice bench and a place to shoot on my property in Arkansas. Uh, I will try to do some reclamation of the uh, of the slugs. Another way that you could look at this, though, another thing you could do, especially with low-caliber stuff, you had a great, we used to do this all the time anyway, uh, for 22 shooting in uh, Pennsylvania. We had this great big stump from a tree that we had cut down, big, huge uh, catalpa tree, which is they call it a bean tree. We had a huge stump, and we had cut like several um, benches out of it, and they were sitting over where we used to shoot skeet. And then when we were shooting our 22s, there was kind of a flat face on a couple of them. We'd just tack a paper plate with a dot on it up there, and we'd shoot. And that tree, that stump, became the backstop. Well, all that lead is in that stump. And I don't know how long you could have shot it with something like a 3006, but I put a hell of a lot of 22 long rifle and 9mm, 38 specials into those stumps, and I never blew one apart. Um, I never wore those things out. Now, all that lead is contained in that, and you might want to use some you know, consideration about how it's disposed of. Uh, maybe digging a very deep hole and putting it in the ground with a backhoe would be the safest. I don't know. But at least all that lead is now contained in one place. Um, I'm not going to overthink or overworry about lead from firearm discharge, though. There's plenty of natural sources of lead out there. And frankly, as long as it's not being ingested into the body or breathed into the lungs, there's a hell of a lot of things out there that are more dangerous for us than lead. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Iz. My name is Iz. Um, my work is offering a Roth in-plan conversion where basically they waive the uh, 20% withholding and I get to split the tax based on that conversion um, across 2011-2012. And I'm just wondering, is it a good idea to have, now that I've got this benefit that it's real, real temporary, is it a really good idea to go ahead and just convert everything I possibly can to Roth? And uh, what are the potential impacts based on that? And then, of course, you know, what are the things that somebody uneducated like myself are not going to be able to see? And I uh, appreciate it. Thanks a lot for the show, and uh, have a great day. Bye. Um, conversions are not something that I'm really slick on. Um, my instinct would be that it might make sense, and it probably makes sense depending on your age when if you ask me choose between a Roth and a conventional IRA I'm gonna pick the Roth every time if I'm starting a new one with the conversion process there's there's kind of a loophole sitting here where you can get out of the uh, the, the, the the 20% conversion fee and you just pay the taxes and split it out over two years it, it's probably gonna make sense um, but it's something you're gonna have to decide for yourself the consequences are immediate 
and the benefits are long term. The consequences are you got to pay taxes on twenty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars worth of income uh, at your current tax rate, and spread out over two years, maybe you can get the rate down. I mean, that's one of the big two years spreading it out is not just about. And you're gonna have to check with your plan uh, advisor to see how this works. But my understanding then would be, if I'm doing a hundred thousand, well, it's fifty thousand this year, fifty thousand next year. That may keep me in a lower bracket, so it may even mitigate the circumstances further. The, uh, the the other way to look at it is, well, you got to come up with the money, but you can pay for it out of the money you're converting, probably. Uh, I would imagine you can use the money you're converting to pay the taxes. You're kind of resetting back to square one then, because here's the thing, and, and financial advisors always try to sound smarter than they are. The, the, the reasoning behind a conventional is, well, you'll be in a lower tax bracket after you retire. But my... My it's one of the places I agree with Dave Ramsey on investments. If you're going to put away a thousand dollars a month, or five hundred dollars a month, or two hundred fifty dollars a month, or two thousand whatever amount you're going to put away in your retirement account, whether you're paying taxes on it or not, your human psychology is you're going to put the same amount in there. That means that the two accounts are going to be worth the same when you start drawing out of them. And you're going to pay taxes on one and not on the other. That's why the Roth always wins. On the conversion, you have to weigh your time to retirement, what your cost is, where the money comes from. It may make more sense than if to find out, can I simply begin my new contributions into a Roth and leave the conventional? When we looked at an IRA that my wife had uh, from the past, and this was 10 years ago, when we did all the math and worked everything out, it made sense to leave her conventional IRA alone and simply stop contributions to it and begin new contributions to the Roth. That might make the most sense here. Again, this is something like without all the numbers, without your age, your time to retirement, how much money is in there, what your tax rate is, I can't give you a cut and dry answer. But in the end, I will always prefer the Roth, and I don't care who writes me and gives me some kind of bullshit scenario about, well, if you do this and your tax rate's 18% when you retire, and it's 33% today, if you go take a good calculator that calculates a Roth versus traditional, you have to be within about five years of retirement to ever make the traditional work better for you. So I would always go with the Roth because here's the thing. If you're putting money away... For a long time, sooner or later, the interest earned will outweigh the principal invested. So with a conventional IRA, I am def deferring my, my taxes on the contribution and then later paying the taxes on the contribution and paying the taxes on all of the interest earned. With a Roth, I'm paying taxes on the contribution, but I'm avoiding 100% of taxes on the accumulated Keeping in mind, our government has their greedy freaking eyes on all those IRAs and 401ks right now, and major changes may come. I have always said, stick your, keep your IRA, keep your 401ks, don't liquidate them. I'm telling you, there may be a day when I come on here and go, all bets are off, get your money out, hide it. It ain't yet, and hopefully it'll never happen. I think if it does, that our government is in danger of people pulling them out of the rotunda pulling them right out from behind those desks they sit around and vote in, and pulling them out into the streets. More likely, they will grandfather the existing accounts and change the rules on new contributions, which is another reason to solidify your positions in your existing accounts today, as far as I'm concerned. Sorry I can't do better for you on that one. You're going to have to run the numbers and do the math. 
my gut is in many situations, it makes the most sense to leave existing stuff alone and start new contributions to a Roth. Let's go take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Steve from Indiana. I have a permaculture question for you uh, related to Russian fireplaces and masonry heaters. In Europe in the old days, when wood was scarce, they trunked the tree and then harvest the new growth. That way, you know, you don't have to build a brand new root system and all that. The question is, what species work the best for that purpose? That is the fuel that they shine with. So what do you plant? Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. That's a great question. And someone just sent me a link that I'll put in today's show notes uh, that was about uh, lost information from France, believe it or not. And um, trees for firewood from you know the time frame when, when people were doing this practice, which, by the way, is called coppicing. Uh, coppicing is where we cut the tree and then we allow regrowth. Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of people envision this, this coppicing uh, practice as we have a tree, this great big giant tree, And then we cut it off maybe a foot above the ground, and we let it regrow out of that stump, and then we cut it again, and we cut it again, and we cut it again. That's not generally, I mean, there's places and there's trees that will handle that, but it's not generally the way that this is done, and it's not the most productive way, and it doesn't deal with uh, browsing. See, when you cut a tree and you got all that nice, green, beautiful, budding regrowth that first year, there's this thing called a white-tailed deer and anything similar to it that looks at that as candy. Boy, and it'll come up and it'll just eat the heck out of that and you get a lot less of your regrowth to occur. So generally the way that this was done is trees were, were trimmed from growth to crown out about seven to eight feet up in the air like most of them do in suburbia today. And up where after all those branches formed, up where the major wise of the tree, the tree was topped up there about eight feet high. And then all of that crown of the tree was used for firewood, and the stump isn't sticking six inches or a foot out of the ground. It's sticking eight foot out of the ground. It still looks like a tree. And all that fresh regrowth is up out of the reach of your browsers. So first of all, that is a better way to do it. As far as the trees that will, will handle this, most hardwoods will do this. Not all, but most. Oaks, no problem. Willows go like crazy. Um, beech, no problem. Uh, birch, no problem. Elm, hawthorn, hornbeam, hazel, uh, ash, all of these trees will do this. Poplar does it beautifully. Uh, your pear trees, especially your fruitless pears. There's kind of a, almost, I almost consider it a scam going on in, in a lot of the northeastern United States. We got these guys that come around to your house and they say, we'll do your winter trimming for you. And they go and they just basically coppice the tree. And because these people have small front lots and all the trees are like growing over um, the houses and all, and they just they just you go and you, you go around winter time after all these these tree trimmers go through, they've done sold their firewood uh, inventory out in the early winter and the late winter they go around and they cop trees for people, and then the, the tree just grows back three or four years later they show up and do it for you again and they keep doing it. Well, the reason they're doing it and they're charging you a few bucks to come in there and thin that tree out. And your tree just seems like it gets, every time they do this, the growth gets more erratic and wild. It gets bigger and bigger. They're compassing. That's what they're doing. And, I mean, you can do this with your own trees in your front yard. It's not hard. Um, one of the things that I see them do, though, that is probably a bad idea, and they do it because it looks a little neater, 
is they cut the, 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 the cuts perfectly 90 degrees to the ground, so they're almost level. You can almost go up to all of them and put a level on them. That's not a good idea. And the reason it's not a good idea is it forms a flat surface, and when you get rainwater, rainwater accumulates there, and wood and water equals rot. So cutting them at a slight angle so that the water will run off like it does off a roof will keep the tops of those dry. So that's kind of the best way. But as far as the trees that you can use, you want to focus on good quality, high quality firewood to do this with. So ash, maple, beech, birch. I'm reading right off this list from this Lost uh, Lost in France website, which is really cool, Trees for Firewood. So I will put a link to this resource today. But I think it's something that a lot of us could be doing for land management. If you're a timber you know, management uh, facility where you're trying to grow big, long board lumber, this doesn't work real well. If you go into uh, existing forest land where all the trees have already crowned out, you know, 20 feet up in the air or higher, and it's not really practical to coppice them at that point, but when you're, you're planting trees for this practice, it makes sense to force that crown at about eight feet up where you can get up with a simple ladder or you can even force it at six feet where you can use, you know, just a, a saw and, and maybe a stool, uh, to do this type of work and bring down these big branches. And when that happens, the regrowth is so much faster than the original growth of the tree because that massive root system is down there to reach for nutrients and water and the root, the tree kind of is like a goldfish in a bowl. Right? Put a little goldfish in a little bowl, he'll stay a little goldfish forever. When we put a little goldfish in a pond, he turns into a giant carp. He grows to his environment. Well, the tree sort of does that with its root system. No matter what you do for a tree, it won't grow that big until its root system is big enough to feed it and hold it up. I mean, if you think about a shallow root system tree without a great big tap root and a big fan root system going out, where your roots and your trees generally go out and exceed the drip line a little bit, If it doesn't have that root system in place, it won't grow uh, the way you want it to because it, it has this, in, you know, any living thing has some level of innate intelligence. And if you grow a 20-foot tree with a shallow root system, what will happen? It'll fall over. So that has already been done when you coppice a tree. So there you go. Again, I'll put a link to the resource. And uh, I think this is if you have more than a few acres of land with some trees on them and you want to cut uh, firewood from your own property, uh, especially with your younger trees where you can work and get them to crown out the way you want to, maybe clear some of the larger timber tree out and use it for your own timber or sell it off to create some spaces. And don't cut it all down because those big old oaks and, and hickories are great for wildlife. You don't want them all to go, but if you create some areas, you can have a relatively small area being managed for firewood and have it be almost 100% renewable. A uh, great question to polish up the day with. Uh, this has been Jack Spearco here with, with another one of our call-in shows. Remember, you want to get in a call-in show like this, 866-65-THINK. I've got some good stuff planned for next week. I'll let you guys know this here at the end. I'm going to be at the bug-out location all week next week. But there will be shows at least four of the five days. I'm gonna, uh, I'm actually recording this show on a Thursday. I'm gonna try to knock out two tomorrow. Do one over the weekend. We're not leaving until uh, I think Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, so I'll try to knock out another one or two on Monday next week. Maybe you go one day without a show next week. Uh, but I always try to make sure there's some stuff left behind for you guys. We're getting really excited about our move. We're going to be taking a bunch of stuff up there with us this time, uh, more than we probably ever have before. We're going to do some finishing work on our flooring up there, try to get some people out to talk to us about uh, replacing some of the carpet. 
And we're really getting accelerated with this move process. And uh, as I mentioned that, I want to say again to this entire audience and all the support you guys have given us, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we're able to do something very few people in our, our age bracket are able to do now. And that's really live the way that we choose to. And uh, it's because of a lot of principles that I, I, I tell you to incorporate in your own life. But I'll make no, no, no uh, doubt about it that it's also because you guys have supported the work that we do. Uh, thank you for that. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The revolution is you. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess When we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way